This is The Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this seventh episode, Alex interviews Liz Page Gold and Alex Danvers during the 2017 SIPS meeting. They discuss the value in learning the scripting language R, their perspectives on teaching statistics at the undergraduate and graduate level, and the value of model comparison tools such as the Bayes factor for evaluating psychological theories. Okay, we're here at SIPS. We are at the Society for Improvement of Psychological Science 2017 meeting. I'm Alex Etz. I'm joined by Liz Page Gould. Hello. And by Alex Danvers. Hi. And this episode, we're going to talk about their general theme of their workshop that they're doing at SIPS, which is about learning R, basically. Um, R is a very common programming language that lots of people feel like they need to learn these days. Lots of people are recommending that we learn it, but it's sort of a, a tricky topic to broach. So uh, I thought maybe we'd just start with like a quick introduction. Uh, Liz, where are you right now? I mean, academically. Yeah. Ah, yes, I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, where are you? Uh, I am starting a position as a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing at the University of Oklahoma. Excellent. And you just completed your PhD? Uh, yep. Uh, I just sent in the PDF to ProQuest like a week or two ago. <laughs> Woo, congrats. Congratulations. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so maybe we'll just jump right into the topic at hand. How did you guys find yourself co-teaching this workshop together, right? It's like you've got a very established professor just finishing his PhD <laughs> now, and, and how do you... How did you, you get here? It's SIPS uh, brought us together. So Alexa Tollett uh, is one of the key people that are organizing the conference. And she emailed us and said, hey, you both expressed interest in or be willingness really to you know, lead in our workshop. And would you like to do it together? Yeah, honestly, on my form. So there was a questionnaire form of like, would you be willing to do something? And, and last year, I kind of was my first SIPS, the first SIPS. And I felt like I hadn't jumped in enough. And so I was like, well, maybe I could do an R workshop. But I, I put in it like, I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with this. I'd really feel more comfortable if there was someone else. So uh-huh. I got very lucky Interesting. in finding you. So you were my in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. How funny. Now, what will you cover in this workshop? Will you start at the, you know, how to download and install R or like this is a vector or, you know, what level are we teaching here? Yeah, well, we're definitely doing a beginner intro to R, uh, but we are hoping people will come with R, R and R Studio already downloaded. Okay. So they'll, they'll deal with that hurdle. But actually, I mean, Alex should talk about this because we're going to take a narrative approach really to presenting material and it was all his idea. So you should oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, tell us about this. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean... So basically, I started using R um, during this like one or two year period when ASU didn't have um, free SPSS for everybody, and I just started using it for studies. Like I was like, "Oh my god, I have to analyze this data. I'm terrified, but you know, uh, I'll try and make it work." And so I don't know. Like when I was thinking about how to structure this, I was like, "Oh, 
actually, I feel like the way that I learned was just like, I have to do this for an entire study. You know, let me take it all the way through. And actually, I've been playing around with the Minilabs data for the last um, couple of months, actually, um, for, a, for a separate project. So it sort of jumped into mine. Why don't we just reanalyze uh, a Minilabs project? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when, yeah. how many years ago was this? Um, I want to say three or four years ago or when I first started ago. using R. Okay, yeah. and how did you get into, how did you learn R yourself? Did you, were you taught or? Um, you know, I have had some courses where people talked about the basics of R um, and a professor who was in the quantitative department at ASU, Haiwan Suk, um, provided me with some slides and stuff and some example syntax, but it's mostly Google. It's mostly Stack Overflow. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Liz, when did you first learn R? And you and didn't start with R as your first No, I did not. I, I learned S+. Plus. S+. Uh, plus. And I believe it would have been in about the spring of 1999. So I'm going up on 18 years there. Okay. And then I switched over to R in the spring of 2002. Is R the successor to S+. Plus? It is, okay. indeed. It's okay. the open source version. Oh, so S+, plus plus belongs to Bell Labs. Oh, yeah. okay. I see. I see. And uh, what was your first, so S, S plus was your first programming language, or was it not your first? No, it no. wasn't really. Was I'm first? not even sure what it would count, but the TI-83 uh, calculator, <laughs> oh, Okay. I first I began programming that, but I'm not oh. sure what language it is. Hmm. Um, it's basic-like, Yeah. but yeah, and then my main programming language um, that I actually would say that I used much more than even R in the beginning was Perl. Perl, uh, okay. Yeah. What, what is Perl like ah, in relationship yes. to R? It is, Perl stands for the Practical Extraction and Reporting Language. Okay. But um, like R, it's Turing complete, so you can do anything on a computer with Perl. So especially in the beginning, I used them in tandem, where I used Perl for extraction and reporting. So I used it a lot for data set management, um, just automatic cleaning, merging, all of those things. Right. But now I do it the, all of that in R and I find that the two-step process isn't ideal actually. So I, I, I use Perl a lot less now, especially for data and analysis. Yeah. Right. So in, in a workshop like this, what do you hope that the participants will come away with like what what skills do you hope that they can do uh, I mean my hope is that they can go from like step one all the way through to here's how what I would report in a paper you know for I mean and, and they've got the syntax they'll get the syntax out of this actually anybody can get the syntax yep. on the OSF um, to analyze an experiment and if you you know follow if you're following that basic structure you can probably figure out how to modify it for your own use okay I see. yeah like that some the narrative approach I was talking about um, that Alex suggested is when we're taking the data set and then we use R to or we talk about data manipulation but then we use R to generate the demographics you need for the participants section to get your also descriptive statistics for your materials, scale reliability. Then we go into replicating the uh, mini labs data or reproducing what they were finding, which was a replication. So, um, <laughs> but <laughs> these terms are very exactly, confusing. Exactly, indeed, apparently. Um, and, but we go a little bit beyond their analyses. So we show basic t-test, ANOVA, correlation, um, and we get, and, and of course, linear models, and then we get to multi-level models.
Okay. Um, so yeah, and people will have example syntax all the way through. And my goal is the same as Alex's. I really want someone to be able to walk out and be able to apply R to their data set. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll make sure to post the link to the materials awesome. when we post this. So Thanks. anyone can get those if they're open. Um, so I think uh, a question that a lot of people have with regards to teaching R is they're not sure when to incorporate this in the curriculum, right? Some people are transitioning now to teaching their statistics courses with just, just R, right? You start with stat 101 and you're learning it via R instead of what they might have done with SPSS, right? Mm -hmm. uh, do, what pros and cons do you see for this approach? Do you think this is a net positive or do you think that maybe this is a, a harder way to go about it? What do you think? Either one. Well, it's complex. Mm. So a lot of what we're discussing at SIPS, they are the means to achieve what we want. And then what is it that, uh, and then the actual goal itself, right? So how much trade-off, uh, you know, or there is a trade-off between everybody being at that end state and then how quickly we get to that end state. Um, so the way that that applies to your question about R and everybody using R, which I do think would drastically increase reproducibility at the very least of your own findings, right? right? Um, is that there's a legit learning curve. And it's hard. Yeah, it really is. And really, I think troubleshooting and Figuring out the answer to your problem is the thing that takes the most expertise to develop with R. Right. And, but it would be ideal if everybody used it. So you're talking about Stats 101. Yeah. I think that if we started undergrads with R, I view there as actually not being much of a barrier to implementing that because people are very open um, at that stage. And especially if they've never known anything different, um, then it's a lot easier. But with graduate students, I teach a graduate statistics class and I do it in both SPSS and R. And I do not require people to do one or the other. They can submit their assignments in either one. And I provide all example syntax in either SPSS or R, but they must use syntax. I mean. Pfft. Um, <laughs> like, so even if they use SPSS, they can't go click through the menus. No. I mean, or if they do, they have to use paste. Oh. So okay. you still have your trail um, or, you know, breadcrumb trail. And that's very important. So that's going to happen no matter what. Okay. But So some type yeah. of writing a code yes. is you think is a necessary skill these days. Oh, yeah. I don't even believe in any other form. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, having been a graduate statistics TA, oh my God, when you get statistics, I mean, when you get syntax, you can like figure out what's happening, you know, because that like, and that's how you troubleshoot, you know, if somebody's like trying to be like, well, I think I clicked on this, you know, I mean, I think that that's part of the, the reproducibility as well. You yep, know? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. Because if you are going through six menus to get to your, your analysis, and then you send your file off to somebody else, your collaborator, for example, there's no trail of, of what buttons you clicked, right? I and mean, even for yourself. Right. I, mean, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, we think about reproducibility and, and you know, and it's um, derivative of replicability um, after that. But 
you know, it's not even about other people reproducing your work. It's about you being able to run that analysis. You find some exciting finding. You email your advisor and you're like, oh my gosh, you can't believe what I found this is the best thing ever. And then you go to run that same analysis one more time and you didn't remember that you clicked this one thing or you changed this parameter in that one place. And if it left your brain, it's possible that it will never re-enter your brain. <laughs> um, especially if you were doing set analyses at 3.30 a.m. or something like that, right? None of us would ever do that. <laughs> that, no. that so that's like, hey, that's a good thing to do at 3.30 a.m., I think. Yeah. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, what are you going to do just for your own sanity? Because yeah. then you rerun it, you have nothing. Then what do you do? You come back to your advisor, you say, oh, well, I just made a mistake, which, you know, is sloppy, right? And then yeah. they think you're sloppy. And so, yeah, breadcrumbs well, are for of yourself. This, um, in, in the new program, JASP, they've made it so that you, if you get this output, you can click on it and it brings you back to your input screen and shows you all the settings. So this sort of helps solve that issue. Mm -hmm. um, but there's still no scripting in this place. So, yeah. so it's still, do you feel like the, it's, is it really that you're limiting the analyses that you can do also? I mean, because now in, in R, for example, all of the new statistical methods that are coming out, they're getting implemented in R. Sure. Uh, and so to really be on the cutting edge, you've got to be using these packages. Yes. But if you had this sort of GUI system that you could point and click on that also saves your analyses, uh, do you think there's more to be gained than just this? So it, you're still on the cutting edge, uh, but you're you're not scripting yourself. What do you think is really to be the biggest gain of, of switching to scripting, right? Uh, this is a hypothetical world. We're not there right now currently, but... I mean, one of the things for me that's that's not something that I expected was just data management became something that I really started to understand in a deeper way. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, especially the experiments I was running in my first couple of years, you know, like I literally, I had boxes of data, I had boxes of paper that then got put into <laughs> spreadsheets, you know, I mean, right. um, but I think when you've got our code, you're going straight from here's the raw data file that maybe I've downloaded um, because I no longer do paper experiments. <laughs> um, and I can literally say this is exactly how I got to that. So I think, you know, there's still got to be some record of that as well. And if it's all, you know, integrated seamlessly, then you're less likely to make a mistake, you know. I also feel it's more imminently shareable to have syntax as opposed to the GUI. Because, of course, with JASP, and I've thought about this quite a lot with JASP, actually, um, because it's like, why does it get under my skin so much that there's no syntax, right? <laughs> yeah. And as a you know, common complaint. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> it's on their <laughs> website, which is like, we know. Um, <laughs> but you can click through and find all these things. So I think for the reproducibility element of it, they're definitely addressing that uh, by allowing you to that by allowing there to be a very interesting metaphor, I think, between the results output and the input itself. It mm. keeps those two things quite uh, united. And I find that to be a very interesting metaphor uh, that I actually say that metaphor itself is an advantage of JASP because I just think it's interesting. I want to continue thinking about it. But that being said, um, you have to have JASP installed. And then once you do, you have to load the file and click around. Whereas you could send me a text file of your R syntax. Um, and I've edited some of the stuff that we were doing just in text edit, because for some reason that was a better thing for me to do, you know, um, than 
another way. So there are other advantages to syntax, and I do hope JASP adopts them. That being said, though, the cutting edge thing is really important in terms of people being able to program new modules, right? That's right. what R has as its advantage. But my understanding, although I haven't gone into this, is that uh, that you can program ma modules for JASP as well. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what, do you, does anyone know what language it uses? I don't know. Okay. I thought yeah. JASP was a, isn't there R underneath JASP? Yeah, if, if, it, if there's a program in R, I think it can be integrated into to JASP, what? but usually it would probably be through a module. So you'd have to like write up the way to load it in and sort of right. what boxes to include and all these things, because you have yeah. to build this interface over it. But yeah, a lot of it is run through R, which like the base factor R package right. is essentially right. runs like, yeah you know, most of the Bayesian analyses. There yeah. are a few that are sort of custom built by JASP, but yeah, a lot of it is via R, <laughs> which is kind of nice. Um, but but I, it can I, still be on the cutting edge because people can write modules for it. I think that's the essence right. of it. That's why R is the cutting edge. It's because if I'm a statistician, an applied statistician, I'm going to be creating a new analysis. I can immediately release with my paper the uh, implementation of it, and then that's going to take off. Everybody's going to use it way more than if they had to figure out how to implement it themselves. And I do think that applies in the context of JASP, I believe, but I haven't looked into yeah, exactly okay. what you need to know. Cool. Um, so one question I have about um, is, is stats education in general, right? So like the, the whole overarching programs that we're teaching our students. Um, do you think that this... Uh, it, that we're doing a, a good job, a bad job. Uh, how much do you think this is contributing to the so-called reproducibility crisis? Um, and how much do you think it's contributing? So if we completely reformed our stats education, how much of a problem would we still have in, in psychology? I, I want to hear your thoughts. You, you want me to go first? That's right. <laughs> 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 I <pointed it> Yeah, no, I'll take the controversial question. <laughs> right. Uh, then you can, can you walk me back? Thank you for taking one for the team. Um, no, so I, I do think that part of the issue is that people, you know, I don't know. So I think there was like a, a famous incident um, on like maybe Facebook or Twitter about like, a well-known psychologist m confusing the difference between like, oh, a effect is true in the sample, but that's not really what an inferential statistic is supposed to do, right? A, a inferential statistic says, okay, I saw this in the sample, and now I can conclude that it's true in the population. Sure. And, you know, like, there's like really sort of like, you know, well-known people who maybe like don't quite get that difference. And you're like, oh, well, that seems like a big deal. And also if you're, you're training people and then, you know, they're passing on their knowledge from generation to generation, those right. seem like big issues right you know so we have to get the people in charge a good education about it so they can teach the people yeah coming up about it yeah now that said i feel like there's a lot of really smart thoughtful people especially um in terms of statistical training like i i don't know i mean maybe it's who i've been exposed to but i feel like there's a lot of people who are getting good training and it's just sort of being able to merge that with a culture that wasn't used to the kind of precision and the kind of like uh, detail-oriented stuff. I mean, I remember early on in my grad career having a conversation with somebody who explicitly said to me, like, yeah, I don't take what those statisticians said seriously. You know, they may say this, you know, like, 
but we don't really have to do it that way. Oh. And so I like think with fixing your sample size in advance or something like this. Or transformations or checking or transformations assumptions is what I assumed you meant. What? Um, yeah, I think this was regarding checking like um, correlation among predictors or something. Right, right, right. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Assumption checks. Right, right. right. Yeah. A lot of people like to jump over those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. I definitely agree that a lot of um uh, that there are issues in the field that pertain i think to our uh, mentorship model when it comes to statistical training um, there's a certain extent to which you always are going to get trained by your advisor and you want that that's a good thing but there should be some field-wide standards that we don't just offload to the mentorship model and that's that might be the way in which I would say that I think you can end up with certain systematic practices that just aren't good. Like it seems like nobody or a lot of people don't really know how to do simple effects tests. And when you think about that in the context of our education, it actually makes sense because you maybe learn about simple effects testing with ANOVA, and then you're learning about Bonferroni correction or right. something like that, which is you know very conservative and not, you, there are many other options, even though I use Bonferroni all the time, don't get me wrong, but you know, <laughs> that's what you're gonna, you know, that's what you're gonna be learning. And then when it comes to a regression model with an interaction term, oh, most boy. people are not gonna learn that in undergrad. And the crazy thing is most people are not gonna learn it in graduate school. Right. I think for example, follow-up tests and simple effects testing, I would say is probably one of the most pervasive things that I just see people doing incorrectly in the field. And I attribute that to the mentorship model more than anything else. We're not teaching it systematically. So you just do what your advisor did and what your advisor is doing is subsetting their data and then testing you know, more simpler models within that. And that's not right. Okay. Um, but I actually, this might be kind of weird coming from me. I actually don't think that statistical training issues is one of the major problems with our reproducibility crisis. Really? Um, yeah, I think it's questionable research practices. Mm. Um, and those are actually a bit different from your data analysis. I mean, there's certainly flexibility in analysis in the garden of forking paths. That's huge. But I would almost call that more yeah, research practices than statistical skills. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th I definitely think it would be good if we standardized a lot of things. I think it would help a lot of people, especially, uh, you know, at different universities that have exposure to different kinds of training. But when it comes to reproducibility in a grander sense, yeah, I, I think that we need to focus more on the gr grander culture of, you know, incentives and actual methodology practices, right. personally. So you think we need to change more of like, how do we reward solid research, yeah, for sure. example, or, you know, a clear explanation of the limitations of a study, for example, right? Often reviewers ask you to take that out. Yeah, paper, yeah, yeah. Right? Or they'll say, you know, oh, this, this result wasn't so convincing to me. Maybe go collect a couple more guys and report back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so, uh, Alex, what would you say is the... Uh, if you had to pick like one place to really target to improve the reproducibility problems, uh, it, do you think it's uh, statistical education, or where would you where would you go? Um, 
That's a very big question. I know. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, you know, and I, I want the I, final yeah. answer from uh, right, 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 right. for all time. That's and, right. Uh, yeah, we'll implement it. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm kind of with Liz on this one in that I I think that if people were motivated to get the stats right, I think that there's enough training and enough interest. I mean, honestly, I still take MOOCs. You know, I still like I. Yeah. Uh, so I think I might be the only um, person who doesn't regularly use Bayesian uh, inference who has been interviewed on this podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, I want to learn it. So I took a four-week MOOC over the summer. And, you know, I'm still I'm still in the process of learning it. But I think it's, it's easier to get where you need to be now. There's a lot right. of free resources for if I really think it's important. It's, it's more about the incentive structure and about sort of rewarding people for being clear being open, um, you know, and yeah, I don't know. Part of me thinks of like reviewing and and journal standards. Like that's really seems mm. to be the bottleneck. So um, I just recently submitted a paper where I submitted all the data and all the code, you know, and all the output in R Markdown. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully. Awesome. Hey, yeah. kudos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's but awesome. uh, I was talking to a friend last night who was um, – reviewing a paper and he said okay well i just wanted to check you know i'm an open science guy i'm going to look at your data because they posted it publicly and i was like that's great i want to reward it yeah uh but they didn't post syntax with it and so i i I don't know i feel like there's just like got Uh to be this whole kind of um integrative approach to like when all these things come together it actually makes science easier you know like when when everything is sort of um yeah like you're encouraged to have open data and you're also encouraged to like you know through these badges to have other things like there's there's like a, a sort of complete system approach that that works right and so it sounds like it's more like um it, it correcting the workflow almost right and like getting with r you sort of now have all this links to the data directly mm-hmm. and then you can write it in r markdown for example which is a program for mm-hmm. writing your paper within r essentially mm-hmm. uh, and do you have do you have experience with this liz writing with r markdown yeah i've used r markdown for what sure what do you think about it yeah, i i love it um yeah, I think it's fundamental for reproducibility I mean, especially uh, but also again for your own sanity you know i should sort of want to reiterate that a lot of the reason to get into open science is for purely selfish reasons. And that's that, <laughs> right. you know, you want to be able to sleep at night and it's going to make it a little bit easier if you do, um, if you're practicing open science. But um, yeah, so one big, you know, aspect of that and somebody who also has been um, big at SIPS, uh, Michelle uh, Nurchin, um, she created StatCheck. And that goes through and matches just your statistics, does a checksum, essentially. You know, you have your T-value and your DF and then a P-value, and those should all sort of match up. And that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing. Um, And my, although we're actually trying to look into this, because I think there might be a broader problem with actually, yeah, um, two of my earlier papers that I wrote with SAS, they're quite different in StatCheck, but it's not StatCheck's problem. So I need to figure that out, it's not StatCheck. Um, But that being said, all my later papers um, are beautiful, you know, Um, (laughs) when they come through StatCheck. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's because R sort of constrains you into this effect, right? I mean- Well, if you're using R Markdown- Right, that's what I mean, Then it'll always be consistent. Right. Unless, you know, R itself is not consistent, but if <laughs> right. it comes down to the basic uh, comparative dis- or co- comparison distributions, R has that down. Um, I see. So, I see. yeah, you, you won't fail stat check at the very least. Good. Okay. <laughs> Another question I have is 
uh, Liz, you have a lot of experience teaching stats and methods. Um, so what trajectory do you personally take when you teach this stuff? Is it, do you teach mostly grad courses or undergrads and sort yeah. of what's your philosophy or overarching theme mm -hmm. to your courses? Sure. I'd say I teach mostly graduate classes okay. in statistics, but, uh, but more recently, I've also begun in uh, an undergrad class as well. The my pedagogical theme is kind of giving it away, you know, giving science away, giving stats away. I feel that it's a real problem when people come out of a class and say, "Wow, like I think I learned a lot, but not really sure what it was," you oh, know? Oh yeah. <laughs> and or when someone's like, "Oh, that person must be really smart because I had no idea what they had to say." Right. And that is you know, the absolute opposite of what I want. I want people who felt that they didn't even really understand a t-test to walk out of, you know, hearing about multi-level modeling and say, you know, I can see through time, right? <laughs> That's what I want. It does <laughs> make you feel like you're all powerful. <laughs> exactly, <once you> <laughs> it does. <laughs> right? so, totally. So what exactly could you explain what the benefits of multi-level models are? It sounds like this sure. is really the focus of your class. Well, it's the focus of my research. Research. Um, okay. And I give a lot of workshops on multi-level modeling, but I've okay. never taught a class on multi-level modeling. Oh, how cool. So okay. yeah, so my, my graduate p class is more of a buffet of advanced oh. methods, um, okay. of which MLM is one. But yeah, mixed models uh, mostly I uh, what they are is um, basically a linear model that can parse apart that can handle multiple sources of variance mm -hmm. so I also just like to emphasize that it's basically regression with extra residuals so there's all kinds of situations where you might need it but a very classic case is where you have uh, participants coming into the lab for a repeated measures type of study and you're going to be showing them a bunch of stimuli recording multiple responses from each person so you're going to have across say 100 people at least two sources of variance one is of course you know between person differences right. so you know i'm a little bit slower than you um but that being said there's of course going to be within person deviation so i'm not going to you know be exactly as fast or slow your reaction time right. measure on every single trial so what is the variance within myself and then what is the variance that then makes me different from someone else okay. and this is something that with uh, traditional ordinary least squares regression um, and ANOVA, uh, as long as it's not repeated measures, but one-way classic factorial ANOVA, um, it is unable to handle anything other than one source of variance. So this means that you need mixed models. Uh, as soon as you get to repeated measures designs, um, longitudinal designs, and especially any kind of nested design where you have people that you know are clustered in some kind of higher level unit, like- Like a school. Exactly, or, schools, yeah, yeah. businesses, right. you know, Regions, things like that. Yes, oh yeah, like definitely. Right. Okay, yeah. yeah, cool. Alex, have you ever used these? Uh Mixed yeah. models? No, I totally, I, yeah, I took a, a multi-level model class. I got to see through time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, wow. no, I mean, it would, but also like for time series too, you know, yeah, which yeah. I feel like people, you know, don't yeah. think about, but there is that you can use time as a predictor and then you yep. have this like, you know, ready-made framework for doing some pretty cool analyses, mm -hmm. yeah. One of the themes of this podcast is Bayesian methods and Bayesian ideas. And uh, I wonder what you guys 
think about this. I mean, do you have much experience using this in your own research? Have you taught much about this? I mean, it seems to be sort of the zeitgeist right now. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, maybe just, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, Bayesian analyses or Bayesian hypothesis testing, I've you know, been introduced to in the late 90s, um, but I didn't actually use them in my, I've only done really one study that involved a Bayesian analysis, and that was um, something that still be worked on because it got rejected and blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> um, it was a meta-analysis where really what I was expecting was a null effect. Turns out that there's really only a 3% uh, chance, I think, or you know, probability that it's a zero effect size okay. based on what we found. And so there's more of a, looks a very high probability, uh, given the data, that um, there is a small effect um, or a correlation of 0.1. Um, so that's not what I expected. But that was why I went Bayesian, was because I was really trying to predict that null. Right. Um, and so that's an easy reason to go Bayesian, right. I think, in right. terms of, you know, when you're trying to plug in with people and um, say, consider this as an alternative. Um, but in terms of teaching, yeah, I've taught Bayesian stats um, for a long time, and that is incorporated into my buffet-style graduate class. Okay. So they have, um, you know, a two-week module beyond null hypothesis significance testing. Right. And I think I was telling you a little bit earlier that I used to teach it all in WinBugs because that's right. how I originally mm -hmm. learned. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, From the 90s. Yep. <laughs> and they all hated me. Like, they loved me, uh, graduate students, up until that class. And then they hated <laughs> me. Um, and I didn't blame them at all. Uh, but this year, I used JASP for the first time. And I subsequently taught a Bayesian, um, like, basics of Bayesian uh, hypothesis testing workshop and also use JASP. And it's just so different. Right. I, I mean, I could immediately see people hopping on board that before we're not going to be able to. Um, and yeah, and in terms of my class, students loved that section. They really? thought it was so cool because the other barriers weren't there and it was very easy to sell them on the sort of when and why of Bayesian right. stats. Right. So since the how was no longer hard, they loved it. Right, yeah. okay. And then with that workshop I said that I gave and I thought people were really into it. These were kinesthesiologists um, oh. who, you know, some of them don't even use quantitative methods. Others are very quantitative. Um, but again, <laughs> it's a group that was very mixed in terms of its background and even their goals. And, and also they were much very very into it whereas what i would do a similar thing in wind bugs for like a neuroscience group they would still be put off i see yeah. okay <laughs> i see any experience alex with this you know so i feel like i've you know heard like philosophical arguments right i've read some stuff by ej wagenmachers um you know the what's the um paper by Gigerenzer where he's like the you know id the ego and the super ego oh statistic. yeah mindless <laughs> statistics or yeah. something like this yeah um and so I think, you know, on a philosophical level, um, I have been convinced that there's something valuable to uh, the Bayesian approach. Um, and I hope to, you know, get a little bit more experience with it. But also, you know, I guess I would hope that any result that I'd be reporting that would I'd be like, you know, confident and proud of I'm like, hey, this is a thing that I believe uh, would be robust enough that it wouldn't, I wouldn't need to use some kind of Bayesian. In fact, I think Bayesian would probably be more stringent, you know. Can be sometimes. Yeah, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, I, I would hope that just using my, you know, frequentist, my. Right. 
Yeah. You want your results to pass the uh, what is it? The interocular traumatic test, where they they, <laughs> they hit yeah, you yeah. right between the eyes. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, can't exactly. miss them, right? Yeah. Those real. I mean, I wish all of uh, our research were at that level, mm. right? I mean, we wouldn't have any problems with reproducibility, <laughs> right? If all of our effects were Stroop, for example, yeah. right? And even Stroop, you can get places where you can't find it, right? Oh, actually, if you don't mind, uh, just I also wanted to oh, mention yeah. that uh, Richard Richard McElrath's got this this book that I've sort of started looking at and, and I've seen some people using his analyses and I think one of the things that's really turned me on to that way of thinking is the model comparison because mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of ways I feel like what we really should be moving more in the direction of is model comparison you know really? like what's the underlying mechanism how do we think about the process that leads to these data um, you know do I need this parameter do I need these two parameters, do I need three parameters? You know, right. that's the type of stuff that I think is kind of a next level question, but it's also like really interesting from a scientific perspective. I'd actually like to uh, you know, jump off of the idea about, um, yeah, I jump off of these ideas because I really think model comparison is in so many ways the proper instantiation of what we believe science should be. Um, you know, Platt 1964 uh, article in Science where he's talking about strong inference in mm. science. And it's really about coming up with legitimate competing theories based on what we know and the existing theoretical models and then designing studies that uh, can legitimately test each one and not just against the null, right? Right. Um, and where you can ideally falsify them too. And Different model substantive theories, essentially. Yes, yes. Right, right. And that is, in my mind, the ideal of science. And if we focused even just a little bit more on model comparison as a fundamental statistical tool, I think that we would really get there. And then the last thing I want to say regarding that is it's kind of funny that we don't and people think model comparison is so crazy because some of my colleagues do. And I'm like, oh, you just compared the two because of the preponderance of ANOVA in our field, which is just model comparison. Right. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. insane. Like an F value is fundamentally about a model comparison. Yeah. Boy. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny that you, that you both are so on board with this because a lot of the uh, arguments against Bayesian inference focus on these base factors and and they're used for model comparison they think you know oh it's problematic that the results that you get depend on how you instantiate the model <laughs> but it's like right. that's entirely the point right is that we are now trying to create models that we think are meaningful and then we generate predictions from them and then we see which ones can really predict the data better right and then if one is always out competing another one, yeah. then we're going to be generating strong evidence for this model. And then essentially we're into this almost probabilistic falsification where mm -hmm. we have one model that we now throw away basically because yeah. it's doing poorly against yeah. another model. But the important thing is, I think, for this is they have to be meaningful models, mm -hmm. right? I Definitely. Mean, so you guys would no agree with this. Yeah. No strawman. No right. strawman, right, yeah. right. Right, because sometimes the null hypothesis is a straw man null hypothesis. Oh, yeah. But sometimes, mm -hmm. really, you care to show that yeah. two groups are equal on this mm -hmm. or that someone is invariant over time yeah. on some measure, right? So sometimes a null model might be one of the substantive models of interest, yep. right? Uh, and, you know, I actually would just also add that I feel like there's a lot of emphasis in the replication movement to say, I'm going to confirm things. But yeah. I feel like, you know, like, I don't know, I've read some huh. stuff by Razin saying, like, exploratory data analysis is good, you know? And oh, yeah. I think that 
um, model comparison gives us a way to think about exploratory data analysis in a way that's a little bit kind of in between. You know, like I collect a bunch of data and maybe I think it's going to go this way, but like I don't have a super strong, super developed theory, you know, of why it's going to happen. Right. I, I might have an intuition, but I almost don't care what somebody's guess about the data is yeah. if there's not a strong theory. You know, in, in some senses, I feel like if you're going to pre-register your hypothesis, but your hypothesis is just a guess, kind of, like it almost shouldn't matter. It should right. be like, you know, let me just see which, you know, maybe there's one model that that goes very well with, but there's, you know, an alternative model. Or that theory can be instantiated in two or three different ways. Yeah. Which of those versions of that theory, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. These are all things that you can get with model comparison that um, the, you know, classic uh, approaches aren't, aren't really focused on. But also another thing I'd like to kind of comment on your statement about how people uh, might be expressing negativity towards Bayes factors on the on the basis of model comparison and the idea that the way that the other models you've specified are then going to affect the probability of any given model. The, there's a, a common corollary in frequentist analyses, which is that people, I have an email in my inbox now that I need to respond to where some random person <laughs> from the world has emailed me and has said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried because I've run this analysis and I specified my model, like I did two different analyses right. and they give me different results mm -hmm. and I'm really worried I'm like, you specify two different models. <laughs> right. You know, you should always expect a difference. It right. would be um, weird if your inference mechanism was robust to the question you ask it, right? Yes. That's mm -hmm. so yes. That sort of an odd thing to want, I think. And not to think about your model as the instantiation of your theory is insane to me. Mm -hmm. The idea that, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're doing when you say, you know, factor A plus factor B plus factor A times factor B is a theoret is a statement of your theory. You're saying, I think these two things are additive and this thing is dependent and this is my theory. Right. So lots of your theory is sort of implicit in the structure of the yep. model, right? I mean, if you're making, uh, all your predictors are linear predictors, right? You're assuming first order relationships, yep. right? Yep. <laughs> and you're, you sort of are implicitly saying, I don't care about modeling second order things mm -hmm. or whatever you're at. But then you look at the residuals and you go, oh, I probably need a quadratic term in here. And then now your theory sort of needs to be updated to yes. account for this idea, right? Why does it need this term, ah. right? But people focus on the effect. In that example in particular, yeah. I think, they're like, oh, you know, this is a curvilinear effect or right. a linear effect. But why? Right. Why? And the fact that you specified it in that way is your mathematical representation of the constructs or the relationships between the constructs that exist in your mind. And you can maybe you know, play around and pretend that that's not the case, but it is the case every single time you, sp you run an analysis. Yeah. And, and just to circle back to the question of like why programming, yeah. uh, I oh, think yeah. that programming <laughs> uh, makes me more careful about what I specify. You know, I mm -hmm. feel like having to spell it out, you know, like it's yeah. one thing to click on a bunch of windows and say, okay, paste the syntax. But I think f forcing myself to learn R uh, and then forcing myself to actually write out the models, you know, with the little whatever tilde yeah. syntax. Yeah. Uh, it makes you think a little bit more. I mean, even actually all the stuff that I've looked at uh, in Bayesian models and some of the graphical representations like, mm -hmm. uh, 
what is it, the the Krushki puppy book has got like these oh, yeah. like interesting pictures that like I think it makes me think about what I've been doing with regression for the last you know whatever six years a little bit differently right. you know right yeah well I think that's an excellent point to wrap up on uh, I okay. just want to say thank you for joining me on the podcast. Uh, thanks Thank for you. taking time out of sips. This <laughs> has been you. so much fun. It really has. Thank uh, you so much. <laughs> and we will see you next time. Awesome. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Vosse for creating the music for this podcast. <laughs>